We are delighted to be able to assemble today in the very opportunity of offering worship unto God. And as Roger mentioned, Roger mentioned earlier, certainly we're happy to give thought to the presence of each and every one, our membership and visitors alike, and we hope each can in fact be able to say that it's been well and good for us to assemble and to gather. It is true that as we offer worship unto God, we strive to do so in the strict accordance to that which He has set forth in His Word. And in many ways, at least a part of the lesson today will surround that exact same topic. You'll notice the lesson as it was entitled, as John shared that with us a moment ago, also recorded in the bulletin. I've chosen to entitle it, True Worship and Modern Changes. And frankly, many of the things that we mention are simply designed to call us to appreciate that the church continues to battle and to wage war against matters that often in mind have great problems and difficulties associated with it. I suspect that some of these introductory remarks, in fact, are certainly in order. Many of them will not at all be surprising. It certainly seems as if the church has always faced, and I do say always, from those days in Acts chapter 2 onward, always faced those who have been dissatisfied with it in one way or another dissatisfied with its organization, dissatisfied with its arrangement for worship, dissatisfied with the particulars about the way in which she goes about her efforts. But there have been those who, in the interest of that dissatisfaction, have in fact made efforts, sometimes aggressive in character, to change it, to make sure that that which in their mind is put in place improves it, brings it to a better stature of completing what God would have it to be. As we shall see in some passages this morning, even in the New Testament, there are passages that remind us that there were those in the first century who wanted to change it. There were those then who thought that she was inadequately arranged to do what was needed, and therefore change was in order. There continued to be those who would wish to change the church of our Lord in one way or another, to change it in some way with respect to its design, with respect to its nature, with respect to its arrangement, with respect to its worship, with respect to its organization. Sometimes those changes, as you can see on that slide, can almost be asserted with aggressiveness. There are almost those who will become militant if their suggested changes are not accepted. What is to be done when those kinds of responses are made? What is to be done when those kind of changes are encouraged? Sometimes, over the last half century or so, many have been the congregations that have split because of this. Many have been the problems that have in fact developed to the point that has rent the cause of Christ almost asunder in certain communities. True worshipers and modern changes. I would try to divide the lesson into the following structures. First, let's give some thought to more consideration to what I've tried to say. What are some specifics of these changes? What are some of the suggested changes themselves? What are some tactics that are often used to help encourage them in a given congregation? I say these in part so that you and I can be aware of what has happened in the brotherhood and what continues to happen in certain places. Also, that you and I can be aware of what the Bible has to say about it. As we look at some of them, let's continue and begin in the following way. First of all, I've entitled this slide, These Times. 
these times in which we live. And may I be quick to say that it's not as if this is local to the year 2013. As I've stated, even the first century church faced it. You and I today face similar things, but quite often the methodologies are a little bit different. Here is a page listing some efforts that have happened many, many times. To a given congregation or to a given small group of congregations, a person or group of people make themselves a parent. They begin to place membership. They begin to make their efforts known in that particular congregation. They often do so with great enthusiasm and energy. They make offers to teach classes. They make sure that they are made known to all the others. They're perhaps very quick to make house visits and calls in other places. These individuals often, it soon becomes apparent that they have ideas they want to suggest. Ideas about improving things. Ideas about, in fact, encouraging greater development in certain areas. Ideas that in some ways sound very good. If that congregation expresses some resistance to these suggestions, if the eldership, if that congregation is blessed with elders, if they express some resistance or hesitancy, sometimes the individuals respond in a very interesting way. They often begin to work more secretively. They will in fact conduct home Bible studies with selected ones in the congregation. They often will do so in such a way that they have a particular agenda that they wish to push forward and they don't want those that have expressed resistance, of course, to be aware of that which is happening. As you and I can well imagine, then the seeds are planted. This individual finds others who can be encouraged to see things the same way they do. They find individuals who can be influenced to see things as they wish them to be seen. And after a few months, maybe even a little longer, it soon becomes apparent that there are enough individuals that they can approach the leadership that they approached before, but now do so with more aggressiveness. We demand that these things be made change, and we demand that this perspective be viewed, and we demand that these things be allowed to happen. And if they aren't, we are going to take our followers and go elsewhere and make our own congregation. Suddenly now, under the pressure of the moment, some who formerly had been emboldened to resist are now willing to compromise, willing to perhaps see things slightly differently, and soon open digression follows. Might we say that the whole idea at hand did not have the betterment of the Lord's church in mind. It had an agenda for this group of individuals or this individual in mind. The eventual goal in some instances has ultimately led to a taking over of the property of that congregation. The building was lost. Ultimately, the strength of that number became large enough. They took the building and all those that resisted were forced to leave. That happened not 20 miles from here in the century area in the decades that have passed us now. Sad to think of it, isn't it? As you and I give thought to what happened in all those cases, let's be a bit more specific. What are these supposed improvements? What are these supposed upgrades that they wished to assert? You can see it at the bottom of that slide, but just a few of them are these. 
One of the most basic of all is the authority of the Scriptures. These so-called agents claimed that they had a superior viewpoint toward the authority of the Bible, that they had the answer as to the manner in which that authority was to be seen, to be invested, and to be applied. And so at the heart, they questioned in some ways the authority that you and I had appreciated throughout the decades. Another issue at hand, though, besides the authority of the Word of God, it was, at least it came to be viewed so, that what they preached and what they wished taught was a manner of ecumen an ecumenical view of the church. Fancy word means nothing more than this. Namely, that the church, as she has been seen and appreciated, is but one church among many that there is to be a brotherhood enjoyed even by individuals of distinctive faiths. As you can well tell, that puts the church of Christ at nothing but a, a, another denomination. And it does so in such a way it harms irreparably the view that must be viewed with, as it gives thought to the church of Christ, the church that our Savior established. Another matter to be seen is the way in which the worship is to be organized. There is a contemporariness that should be set forth in worship. Worship, so we're told by these individuals, should be organized and structured in a way to meet the cultural ideas of the day and respond to them appropriately. Another issue that is so often seen in these ideas and presentations is the situation as to what should be done by an individual, either man or woman, with his or her talents as it responds to the usage of them in the work of God. Specifically, these would be quick to say any person being given a talent by God should feel free and encouraged by one and all to employ them in any way serviceable to the church, period. It is with that in mind you can begin to appreciate then what developed and what happened. Those aware of the teaching of God saw problems with this. Those aware of the Bible and her sternness with respect to some of these appreciated that all was not well. But yet then upon resistance and upon enough time to gradually and ultimately work the matters as it related to it, individuals were one, churches were split, problems were, arose. As you and I think about all of these things and the issues that have happened and are continuing to happen, these troubling times are such that many examples could be listed. I chose but three. These examples, in fact, at the top. At one time, there was an Oak Hill Church of Christ in San Antonio, Texas. Large in number, well respected for the greatness and maturity that she had espoused, she no longer is of the same variety she once was. This day and time, if you check the website, looking in some detail at those aware of that congregation, you'll find but a very hollow comparison to what once was the case. What happened? Agents were alive and well. Changes were afoot. Things became different than what they once were. Another example from Nashville, Tennessee, the Woodmont Hills Church of Christ. One time, again, readily recognized as a stalwart congregation of the Lord's church. She is no longer viewed that way. You and I would no longer view her that way. 
we see changes that have taken place, things that are promoted openly that you and I recognize are problematic. The Coal Mill Road Church of Christ in Durham, North Carolina. Just to pick three, many others might be listed. At these congregations, if you were to attend one of their services, you would immediately be surprised, almost shocked, at the differences than what you and I are accustomed to. And by those differences, I don't mean just the number of songs before the opening prayer. You and I sing two songs, have a prayer, another song in the lesson. We could have any number of songs we wanted. That's not the point. The point is we would find greatly differing occurrences. Are there accompaniment to those songs? Is there a band over in the corner? Are there musical instruments being played in various places in the context of worship? Are there women delivering the sermons? Are there women reading the Bible classes and leading the singing? Sometimes there are. When we give thought to those, may I simply say that we must be aware of the fact that there are places in which the Lord's church is fighting a battle. And that battle is raging very strongly. And sometimes the battlefields are not that far from here. So thankful must we be for our elders watching over our flock, but each of us must be steadfast as well, appreciative of the fact that these times can in fact be troubling. As you can see furthermore on that slide, let's just list a few specific things that seemingly find their way into most descriptions of these phenomena. It's not to say that this list is exhaustive, but here are some of them. It's not too difficult to observe from time to time congregations that are large enough to have multiple services on Sunday morning. That by itself is a good thing, isn't it? That that congregation is large enough to where their facilities won't accommodate enough people at once. But interestingly enough, sometimes those worship services are distinctly different. The earlier one is often called a traditional worship service. The later one in the morning is called a contemporary worship service. And those adjectives are very leading, aren't they? It's not to say it's always this way, but on some occasions you'll find the early service is much more like what you and I would recognize. Songs that are sung are traditional. They come out of one of these books with which you and I are familiar. At the later service, often it's much more songs you would hear on a Christian radio station accompanied by one or more mechanical instruments. Not only that, namely these differences in worship styles. Sometimes at that morning service, you'll find very different in terms of who is permitted to hold a leadership position in that worship service. For example, at that later service, the contemporary one, women may serve the Lord's Supper to the congregation. A woman, if she doesn't preach, may, leave, may read the Bible Scripture reading for that particular service. Not only that, one may find other activities all that touch upon the consideration of women's roles in the church. Sometimes it has even been raised, can a woman be appointed as an elder? You and I would give thought to again, all of those are matters that we're seeing in the day and time in which we live. Another matter that's often raised, what about how that the authority of the Bible should be viewed? Should it be viewed as permissive or should it be viewed as authorized? Classes are held and discussions take place and eldership meets. 
in which the very authority of Scripture in one way or another is being apprised and discussed. All of that, in fact, makes one wonder. If you look even further at the next set of ideas as well, you begin to hear interesting considerations of certain subjects that are raised more often. Subjects such as the grace of God, subjects such as the love of God, None of us would in fact question or doubt the importance of those topics. But that which we discover is that on occasion they are taken a bit longer than where the Bible would allow one to take them. I might say in light of all of that, at the bottom of that slide are two concluding thoughts before we look to the next. These concluding thoughts challenge us to appreciate that some of the repositories in which these ideas are so strongly encouraged, oddly enough, are the Christian colleges and universities around our country. I don't say that happily at all. I say that, in fact, with great sadness in my heart and voice, as I know that you feel. The very places where one might wish to see in one's son or daughter, the places you would hope would strengthen their faith, encourage their walk with the Savior, are the very places that ultimately plant the seeds that lead them astray. Please be cautious for each of us as we think about the orderliness with which those topics might be seen in these places. Beyond that, you'll notice in finality. Sometimes these individuals that are these agents, the ones encouraging this change lead us to appreciate that they are often very smooth and eloquent. They are often able to express themselves in very persuasive ways. May that persuasiveness perhaps lead us to think more carefully about what the Bible has to say. Our interest, of course, in that brings us to the beautiful church that our Savior purchased. Words almost fail to describe the grandeur and the greatness and the absolute perfectness of that body. But yet with it, we come to expressions like these. The blessed Son of God established and built by promise but one church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All of the language studies in the world cannot change the fact of what Jesus said. He promised to build one church. That church, in fact, was purchased with His blood, Acts 20, 28. That church is the very one discussed in Ephesians 4, 4, in which the inspired apostle said, There is one body, but one. And thus to see a global brotherhood in which everybody is a part of the same church and is able to share in fellowship is to overlook passages that express the uniqueness and the greatness of that church that our Savior established. The authority that Jesus vested in that church is so openly presented in the pages of the Bible, isn't it? Jesus, in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, the language He spoke following His resurrection, but which was embodied even in the language He spoke before it. On that occasion, Jesus said that all power, all authority hath been given to Me in heaven and in earth, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. 
Those apostles, were they not? They were commissioned to preach only what Christ had commanded them. Nothing more, nothing less. And in that commandment, those apostles thankfully with dutifulness carried out that commission. And in fact, in Acts 2.42, on that day of Pentecost, we read this grand statement. They, that is those early Christians, those first converts, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. They didn't step beyond what Peter and the others had preached that day. They continued steadfastly in harmony with it. In faith, they weren't wishing to change it. They weren't wishing to amalgamate it with something else or to restructure it. They were pleased and happy with God's presentation of the way that it was. You'll notice that the statement takes us also to Colossians 3.17 in which we read, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. We are thus to do in word or deed all in harmony with and in response to the command of God through Christ. Isn't that lovely? Isn't it powerful? It does, of course, indicate, among other things, that that foundation for the church and the very head of it, too, is Jesus Christ Himself. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. And we notice in Colossians 1.18, the inspired writer said, He is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Oh, the preeminence that attaches to Christ. When you and I give thought to agents of change, those that would come in and do some of the things that we have described previously, look at how distinct that is to that text that Brother John read earlier from John chapter 4. Jesus on that occasion, did He not say... The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is greatly interested in worship, indeed. But greatly interested not just in any worship, but in true worship. And He wants true worshipers who will worship Him in truth as well as in spirit. When that truth has been set forth as it was in the early days of the New Testament, that day of Pentecost and those years following with the leadership of those inspired apostles, we understand so well that worship was properly organized. Those churches were properly involved in the efforts of the day. We do notice when they had problems like in Corinth, they were rebuked. And Paul sought to bring them back to the proper organization as well as to the proper worship. You and I can appreciate, even in light of all of that, that when worship is misconstrued, when worship is changed to things that are not acceptable, it makes worship not acceptable, doesn't it? In Matthew 15, verses 7, 8, and 9, Jesus quoted from the book of Isaiah, and in that quotation, He quickly made an observation. This people honoreth me with their mouth, and draweth nigh to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Isn't that intriguing? 
Individuals who, by virtue of what they said, gave the appearance of godliness, gave the appearance of overwhelming piety and interest in the things of heaven. But the Lord quickly said, Their heart is far from me. Their words are just a facade. It's just a silhouette. Their words are a misleading character. And then He went on to say, in the next verse, again, This people honors me with their mouth, draweth nigh to me with their lips, with their heart is far from me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You'll notice as the Lord made reference then that the worship that they offered was vain. But in vain do they worship me. All worship is not accepted just because it's called worship. The human family can do almost anything it wants, put a label of worship on it, but that doesn't mean it's acceptable. It doesn't mean that God's pleased. It doesn't mean that it leads to the edification of the body in a scriptural way. Doesn't it lead us again to question and to consider these so-called changes that have been encouraged As I said at the outset of the lesson, even in the books of the New Testament, we find examples of individuals who wished to change things. I would invite us to look at a few of those passages in the time that remains and to see what reaction was to be noted then and perhaps if that ought not be the reaction today. As we begin those considerations, let's look at Colossians, the second chapter, for just a few moments. Beginning in verse number 18 of that chapter, the inspired Apostle Paul, the peerless writer, made observation of the fact that there were some things taking place in the church at Colossae. Things that in fact were very intriguing, but also things that needed to be addressed. Let's begin reading as we are in verse number 18. It says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministereth, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. In Colossae, as well as in some other first century cities, there arose a group of individuals who had in their mind a very special set of gifts. Not miraculous, mind you, but endowments, capabilities, talents. Gifts by which they could enter into a group and make a profession of a special kind of understanding. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Someone to come into our midst, you don't understand things the way you should. Don't you know that God is permissive of these things that I'm encouraging? Go back to the first century again. These individuals that were, in fact, alive and well then, did you notice in verse 18? They beguiled the people. That word literally means to rob. They were stealing from them the very character of faithful, true homage and worship to God in the following way. 
a voluntary humility. Oh, they profess to be sweet and noble and humble. They profess to be the greatest people on earth concerned about your well-being spiritually. Furthermore, worshiping of angels. Amongst the other things they were interested in was they had this special degree of attachment to the teaching of God. They were aware, so they said, of ideas that just common people didn't understand. It included the worship of other beings like angels. And so as they would eloquently and with profession speak about these matters, they could, of course, sway the thinking of some. Notice what else follows intruding into those things which he hath not seen. So they speak about things honestly that they don't know about. They like to think they do. They like to believe that they're aware and they're intellectual, they're intelligent, they are well-schooled and educated. But notice he says they're vainly puffed up in their fleshly mind. They're more concerned about the flesh and not the spirit. They're more concerned about the way things look and the way in which they can appeal to a culture than their association to God. Verse 19, the greatest failure of all, though, is this. They're not holding something. Notice what they're not holding. The head. The head is Christ Jesus, our Lord. These other matters that they're teaching, these concepts that they're presenting, they are failing to hold the head. Now, you notice that that's a powerful statement. The head is to be held by the fact that he has delegated authority and presented it in his word, and if we hold the head, we'll respect what the head said. We'll respect the way in which he has told and set things forth, and we won't try to change it. These first century fellows were trying to change it. They weren't holding the head. They weren't respecting the authority vested in the Christ. Verse 19 goes on to say, "...from whom all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God." When one holds the head, increase will follow. When one does not hold the head... Any supposed increase that's seen is not genuine. There may be numeric growth, but it's not spiritual. It's not attachment to the heaven. Isn't that tragic? You'll notice verse number 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. So notice these agents of the first century were encouraging things of the world, the rudiments of the world. So if you've been dead from those things... Once you and I were baptized into Christ, we were placed into the body, we became a new creature in Christ, we died to all of that. So if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Why would you turn to these things if you died to them? Perhaps in summary, note the last verse. Which things have indeed a show of wisdom in what? will worship. There's a kind of worship that's not very pleasing to God, is it? It's worship prompted by and motivated by the will of man and not the will of God. And any time worship is will worship by man's will, it is a worship that's unsatisfactory. It's a worship that's it's lacking. It's a worship that's insufficient. Note what the Colossians were facing. Here were people coming into their midst, claiming to have a new doctrine, claiming to have a new approach, claiming new authority. 
Don't you believe it, Paul wrote. It's will worship. It is, in fact, rudiments of the world. They're not holding the head. May I submit to you, it seems as if in parallel consideration over the centuries that has happened time and time again. And yet we still are continuing to face it even today. As you think about this text in Colossians chapter 2, this failing to hold the head, may I invite you to consider perhaps a few verses that will close our lesson this morning. These, as you can see, are nestled near the bottom half or so of that slide. In Jude, verse number 3, one chapter book near the end of the New Testament, the inspired writer said that you and I should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. That verse has often been such a great comfort to so many Christians. A faith once for all time delivered, not continuing revelations through the ages, not new perspectives. It was once for all time delivered. When the corpus of inspired text was completed, all Scripture had been revealed. There's no future aspects of it, no future revelations to be made. And you'll notice in light of that, those New Testament writers preached the same thing wherever they went. What Paul taught the Corinthians, he also had taught the Macedonians. He also had taught the Galatians. What Peter had preached, the same thing Paul was preaching, Galatians 1.23. Despite the fact those regions were separated by hundreds of miles in the ancient Roman Empire, the same gospel is for everybody. You and I here can appreciate that just as surely as those agents were desirous of change in the first century, there are still those dissatisfied with the church. They don't like it for some reason. The reason we've learned in Colossians 2 is this. It doesn't appeal to the fleshly aspect of their nature. I want something different. The problem is, it's not my church to do anything different with it. It belongs to the Son of God, doesn't it? He purchased it with His blood. He's the one that died for it. And so He has all authority in it. May I say that may you and I then be always cautious and ever careful as we hear about, think about, and give thought to the changes that some suggest in our world. Certainly we should pray for the integrity of the church that she might remain steadfast and thoroughly grounded in the uncompromising truth of God. In Colossians 2 verse 7, earlier in this same chapter, in fact, Paul even made note how that individual Christians should be rooted and grounded in faith so that we can't be blown about by every wind of supposed doctrine. Ephesians 4 verses 14 and 15, as well as Hebrews 13 verses 9 and 10, help us appreciate those thoughts even more clearly. As we come close to the ending point of our lesson today, May I ask that as we continue instant in prayer for the church of our Lord, may we understand that those digressions in the first century, those supposed changes were opposed by those faithful to the Lord. You've seen what Paul had to say in Colossians 2, but also John the Apostle in the book of 2 John also addressed something very similar. At this point, as we with such gladness of heart think about the church of which we're a part, may we be always thankful, grateful, mindful of what a blessing it is. But in so doing, may we appreciate and pray for those battles being fought by others elsewhere 
that those supposed changes that are harmful might be overwhelmed and overcome and not giving serious root. Today, what about you and what about me? Are you and I faithful, encouraging members of the body of Christ, thankful for the church of which we're a part? Certainly happy not to seek to change it just for the sake of change in ways that are opposed to the work of God. This very day, if you're not a Christian, why aren't you? Jesus died that your sins might be forgiven. He died that you might be saved. He died because He wants you to be with Him in heaven forever. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may, may enter in through the gates into the city, Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Today, if you're not a Christian, if you've never become one, why not this very day allow that to take place in your life? Your decision, though, is what must start it. God has already made His decision. He wants you saved. Jesus wants you saved. The Holy Spirit wants you to be saved. They want you to be Christian. But they can't make you. That decision is left to you. If you'll come forward, we'll be happy to make an observation of your faith by virtue of that confession, and we'll be happy to baptize you into Christ. If you become a member of that body of Christ at some former day and time, but you no longer are faithful... Maybe change agencies have begun working in your heart and life. Don't allow that to continue. Put a termination to that at once and rely upon that old Jerusalem gospel that has saved countless souls for 20 centuries now and will save countless more until the end of time. Today, if, you could be, if we could be of help in praying for you, why not come forward and ask us to do so? We'd be honored. If either of these things might be the need of your life today, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?